I wanted to talk about a uh, statement that was created by Dustin Blaker. He's a sergeant for the uh, Moscow Police Department. You know, it's come to my attention. There is the belief the sheath was planted. You know, one officer saw it, one officer didn't. And they bring up this, this statement right here to reference it. And so I wanted to go through this and see, you know, is there some validation to it? Is there not? This is on November 13, 2022, at approximately 4 p.m., Moscow Police Department Corporal Brett Payne and I responded to 1122 King Road, Moscow, hereafter known as King Road Residence. So right there, that says that they went together or no, I don't think it was that they went together. I think they both just responded. What do you guys think? Yeah, that, that doesn't, it just means that they went, they responded to that incident, right? Yeah, I don't think they went together. I don't think that went together. Yeah, I'm doing I think they just responded to the same call. All right. So it said to assist with the crime scene and processing of crime scene associated with the four homicides. Now, what do we know that had occurred early on in this based on what Christy had told us? So that Jack Decor was woken up by one of his roommates said that something was going on down the street. This was yeah. before the 130 call that Christy made to him. Right. So we know it and police are out there. So we know that it's between 1158 a.m. when the 911 call is made and 130 p.m. when um, Christy Gonzalez finds out uh, about yeah. the, uh, the the situation and is calling him. He's there in the morning from what I am. And we'll find out this here because it says, you know, Detective Payne interviewed Jack Decor's, uh, Jack Decor, Kaylee's ex-boyfriend. I think that's the reason why he's not showing up until four. Now, if they're both arriving at four and they both, uh, I don't know, let's, let's read on and then we'll figure it out as we go. I don't know. I think they did go together because it says upon our arrival, the Idaho State Police forensic team was on scene and was preparing to process the scene. So Idaho State Police forensic team was already there and they were prepared to do what they needed to do. I think that's going to be a key piece of information to remember. MPD Officer Smith, one of the initial responding officers of the incident, advised he would walk me through the scene. Officer Smith and I entered the King Road residence through the bottom of the floor, bottom floor door on the north side of the building. Smith and I then walked upstairs to the second floor. Smith directed me down the hallway to the West bedroom on the second floor, which I later learned uh, through Xana's driver's license and other personal belongings found in the room. Well, Xana Kernodles here known after his Kernodles room. Uh, just before the room, there was a bathroom door on the side of the hallway. As I approached the room, I see a body later identified as Kernodles laying on the floor. Kernodles was deceased with wounds that would have appeared to be caused by a edged weapon. Pretty much the same stuff that we read in the affidavit, right? Yes, sir. Also, also in the room was a male later identified as Ethan Chapman. Chapman was deceased with wounds that would later be determined by autopsy report provided by Spokane County Medical Examiner uh, on December 15, 2022. Now, the reason why I think that they don't really necessarily where his body is at and or why they had to go get an autopsy report to verify it in this manner uh, may have been because we suspect that there's a possibility that the body was moved you know mm -hmm. we believe that there's a chance that ethan may have been blocking the door the officers walking and the door is open obviously would have had to have been moved from where the scene was at first found so it says here i then followed officer smith upstairs to the third floor residence the third floor consisted of two bedrooms and one bathroom the bathroom on the west side of the floor was later determined to be Kaylee Gonzalez, Gonzalez's room. Do you think they would describe it as her room still if she had moved out already? Or do you think they would have said this was the her former room? I think it was too recent, no? What do you mean? Yeah, she, she hadn't moved out. Yeah. No, she wasn't off the lease. But a lot of people say, like, well, she moved out. She she didn't have things there. She she had already moved. She was talking to going back. She was going to have to go back regardless because she had a lot of things there from my my, from what I could see through pictures and my understanding of the scene, yeah, I, I did not ask Christy if 
you know, maybe I should have in you know, hindsight 2020 if Kaylee was still there or living there or she had her her, her bed and stuff there. So I, I don't know. From my understanding, it appeared that she hadn't moved out yet. So this is, I learned later from review of Officer Nunez's body cam that there was a dog in the room when Moscow police officers initially responded. The dog belonged to Gonsalves and her ex-boyfriend, Jack DeCore. I found out from Corporal Payne's interview with Jack DeCore on November 13, 2022, that uh, he and Gonsalves shared a dog. Uh, Officer Smith then pointed at a small bathroom on the east side of the third floor. This bathroom shared a wall with Madison Mogan's hereafter Mogan room, which was situated on the southeast corner of the third floor. As I entered the bedroom, I could see two females in a single bed in the room. Both Gonzalez and Mogan were deceased with visible stab wounds. I was later advised by ISP investigators that they located a tan leather sheath knife laying on the bed next to Mogan's right side when viewed from the door. Now, we know that the this description wasn't very accurate about where this um, sheath was. Apparently, it was partially under the body of Maddie Mogan and partially under a comforter. Yeah. Here's here's what I was curious. It says, when viewed from the door, laying on the bed next to Mogan's right side. What, where do you? Because what this tells me is it's it's on the right side of, Mo, of Mogan when you're looking at the bed from the door. Not that you could see the sheath from the door. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 what I read here. Now I think some folks are reading that that the sheath was out in the open and you could see it from the door. I don't think that was the case. Yeah, I don't, we know that's not the case because we know that it was under her body and under and the under comforter, the, like partially under the comforter, right? Right. Now you're not going to touch anything in this scene, right? You're going to maybe perhaps maybe get some forceps or something and to pick up the comforter to see if you see anything, right? Now we know that the forensic team is here already they were already on scene ready to process everything i think there's a good possibility wow uh, these two officers blaker and Payne, were interviewing jack decor at the station yeah. I, I think the forensic team had probably already started the processing i think there's a good possibility that they pointed out you know one of the forensic teams pointed out the fact that there was a sheath where it was located maybe perhaps lifted up the comforter and showed him do you think that this says something about maybe the position of Mogan when it says that, you know, it was on her right side when viewed from the door? Do you think uh, that maybe says that she was on her side or maybe face down? What do y'all think? I think more than that, she was either facing up, right? That's what we think, but yeah. you well, don't think maybe she was like cuddling with Kaylee, like, you know, spoon, big spoon, maybe. little spoon? More than likely, especially if the, I don't know what size bed it was too, you know, it also depends. Right. I think it was like a full. It was a smaller bed than what she had. Is it, is it normal? Okay. When it, when you're talking about the sheath being discovered, right? Is that mm-hmm. after the bodies were removed, or, or was nah, it during? You, they, they would, they would, they would um search even though the around the bodies, or they would just wait until the bodies were removed then search after. No, so I've never, I'm not, I've never been in a uh, homicide or never investigated one, never was a detective or investigator, any of those things, but. If I was an investigator and the way I would have processed this scene and the way I've seen detectives process the scene, I would have walked in with the forensic team and, you know, the first responding officer, which sounds like that's kind of what happened here. You know, have the, uh, you know, one of the officer who controlled the scene when, when I would have gotten there kind of tell me, all right, what's going on? You know, we have two bodies here that, you know, the whole nine yards, right? And you want to walk it like step by step from what we know, right? And so you walk in, we have two bodies on the second floor. At that time, they probably don't know if, you know, the backsliding glass door was the entry or exit point completely. They could have their suspicions, but they don't know. So they're just going to go on the front door, go up. They're going to see the first two. And after, you know, the detectives visually see things, uh, there's pictures, thousands of pictures being taken at that point. That's when things start being moved. 
bodies start being moved, evidence starts getting collected, but it's fairly quickly in in the investigation process. It's not something that's going to stay there. So, you know, if you have all your pictures done, which let's think about this call, 911 call came in at noon. It was very obvious uh, of what they had. The investigating officer didn't arrive for four hours. So I think that there's a good possibility that the forensic team went in there and took their initial pictures and processed initially part of the scene, made sure that there wasn't anything that could perish. that didn't need refrigerating or something like that. Right. They go in there. They probably find the sheet, notify the lead detective and tell them, hey, there's a sheath right here underneath. And they may have lifted it up. So just kind of lift it up and visually see it, put it down. And at that point, the forensic team would go in there and, and take it out. So there's a good possibility that only the lead detective actually saw it there. And then after he saw it, it was collected. You don't want something like that to be there too long, because if there is DNA on there, the longer it's there, the longer there's a possibility of it getting contaminated by one of the investigators or forensic team. In my opinion, if I was doing this, that's the way I would have done it outside of the forensic team and the lead investigator. Nobody else would have had firsthand knowledge that the sheath was there outside of those two teams and the pictures, obviously, that were taken. When this says here, I was later by ISP investigators, they located a tan leather sheath laying next to the bed. ISP, Idaho State Police investigators, I think that's because he didn't visually see the tan leather sheath because it was collected. Where does everything go? I'm assuming the Idaho State Lab. So I'm assuming the Idaho State Lab criminal, um, the forensic team, uh, the CSI in certain places, you have to have a uh, peace officer license to practice. So they would be considered officers. Uh, I wonder if that's where that would come for. Um, would you film it before? Yeah, of course. 100%. You would take pictures. I don't know about like a video camera. But yeah, they have to oh. take pictures of the scene and all those, like where everything's found. Yeah. And then they move all the stuff. So That's how I would have processed the scene. And that's what I think is going on here. You have your lead investigator going through with the officer who is in charge of the scene. Right. And then there's probably the forensic team right behind them. But like I said, there's like a good four hours there before, you know, that the, the, the crime scene is discovered and investigators get in there. So in that time, I think there could be a lot of work being done by the forensic team that wouldn't disturb what they initially see. You know what I'm saying? And, and this is the other thing, too. We know that day one, the mayor had come out and said that they thought this was a crime of passion. Well, you had Kaylee's ex live down the street. He was with her the night of the, you know, the night leading up to the incident at the corner club. Had been broken up for a few weeks. He had gone on dates with other guys during that time. She was moving to Texas. And like I said, he lived down the street. A knife is being used. And apparently... From what we understand, Kaylee has more severe wounds than the other victims. I think at first glance, you might think that that's what's going on, right? But sure. you have to investigate that and to see if there's truth behind it, which is what they did. And they had Kaylee's ex-boyfriend walk up between 12 and 1.30 and identify himself as Kaylee's ex-boyfriend and was picked up, taken to the police station for, for questioning. And not only were they questioned heavily at that time, but from my understanding, so was Bethany. So was um, Glenn and the person who uh, uh, discovered the, the bodies and called 911. You, you had those people there. You had, uh, you know, the scene isn't going to change. But if these people are willing to talk and you suspect maybe somebody knows something or is involved in it, you're going to talk to them first if they're willing to talk. You're not going to put that to the side. 
that's why I think it took four hours. What do you guys think? Why do you guys think it took four hours? We'll start off with you, Big Blue. You're muted. Yeah, I think I think I think he was interviewing the ex-boyfriend because the office did say that, that he went in with him to talk to him at the police station. Sorry, with a lot of noise in the background. What about you, Jaime? What are, what are your thoughts on the situation? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, when these types of incidents happen, they usually go and question the you know significant other wife, husband, boyfriend or girlfriend, right? So actually if they were they were together the night before as well. Right. So I think that was probably part of the, the process of questioning Jack, right? It probably mm-hmm. took that long. And that's why they probably cured him clear them out pretty easy, um, pretty fair, fairly quickly. Yeah. Well because usually the next, it takes longer, right? Uh it depends. I mean it, it just really depends. Uh, if this alibi is something that you can be checked. Yeah. And or there's something that that clears them, that it's exculpatory. Then I think that just, that was the part of the case. No, the his his alibi. That's probably why it, it took so long to clear him. Uh, that much time to clear him. Maybe. I mean, what do we know? We know that the first day the mayor came out and said, "Hey, there, this could be a crime of passion." And we know that the next day or the day after he comes out and says, "Uh, it could have been a burglary. It could have been a crime of passion." So very early, very quickly, within two days or so, they were starting to fall off the idea that that was a possibility. I think it could have been um, a lot of things. What I know about the investigation into Jack DeCore is that they questioned him multiple occasions during the first two weeks, multiple times. They forensically went through his phone and they uh, took his DNA and he very, very uh, upfront and he didn't argue with the police. He was just, he wanted to do everything he possibly could. Yeah, he was very much cooperative in the situation. So he was able to get cleared fairly quickly. They investigated the crap out of him. They investigated the crap out of uh, the surviving victims. You know, they didn't just like, oh, you know, these are victims. They treated them as suspects first. And from what I understand and from what I've heard was that one of them was um, so traumatized that she couldn't even speak. And that the other one for a while, like it was just like gibberish and crying and just trauma. And you can kind of understand why, like these girls were not, not good. And I think we're going to see that during trial. You know, when, when people say that, oh man, and to rip them up, I'm not sure if that's the right move. I mean, especially if you see a video like that, like their interrogation or their, their statements and you see how impacted they are they're not faking it and and then you have a situation where the lawyer then makes that person relive and go through what they had what they went through and you know accuse them make them cry i don't think that's a good look for a jury you know they don't know all the conspiracy stuff for the most Mm -hmm. part right typically the goal is to find 12 people that haven't you know, know little about the information and haven't searched everything. So they don't know everything. They don't know. They're not going to know that Bethany was subpoenaed to be in the preliminary hearing and that they made a deal for her to go talk to the defense unless it comes out in court. Like They don't find out any of those things. So, you know, they're going to just know what they see in those witness statements and those witness videos. And I don't think it'd be a good look for those 12 individuals if they saw that. You know what I mean? What do you guys think? We'll, we'll start off with you, Hyde. Man, I, I don't know, man. I think, I, think, uh, I think she will go pretty far to convince or at least make them stumble somehow. You know what I mean? And yeah. to put in some reasonable doubt that his her client is not the one who committed this crime. Right. No, I'm not saying that they're not going to do that. What I'm saying is she's not going to like yell at them, treat them like well, they're. You'll, you'll be surprised, man. Be surprised. Really? You think you think she'll go down? I, I, I'm not saying that it's not a good tactic. What I'm thinking is I'm not sure how the jury's going to feel about it. Like if you were a jury and you saw that you had two girls who were part of a, a horrific crime and they survived, right? They're mm-hmm. the survivors of this crime. And that's all you know. And you watch their statements and you see their trauma 
you see them frozen. You see one of them not being able to talk. One of them can't understand. She's trying to help, but it's hard. Yeah. And then you see you see the attorney yelling at him. Mm-hmm. Is that going to be a good look as a juror and doesn't well, know anything else? Well, the thing about being a juror, which it's not, it does never happen, right? They all, most of them, you know, the jury has the feelings too. You're not supposed right. to judge by feelings, but you got to judge by the facts, right? Right. And unfortunately, it's kind of hard to overlook that sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I'm more of a, I guess you could say, emotionalist person. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. like, I could probably overlook the the feeling wise, but not. It's just one person compared to for the, uh, you know, compared to the rest of the jury. They could they can feel whatever they want. You can't, you know. But I mean, even though you're not you're not supposed to, but fortunately, right. that's how it goes. And and for those that are saying it's not about looks, it's about the truth. I, I agree, but you also have twelve human beings that are judging the case it's not for judges to understand you know just the evidence that have been trained who have law degrees we're talking about 12 everyday people big blue what are your thoughts yeah i think that uh, the defense is in a question of course they can't go too hard because they make uh, you know it's one of those things where like if you make somebody cry and stand you're the bad guy it's gonna be worse for his for their defendant they gotta mm-hmm. go at it a certain way what will they know i think bethany won't know anything if, if what we know is true she was asleep the whole time he might have got a call to verify that she was okay that's all we know right and then the time of who came in the morning and what happened in the morning that's what we'll find out with their state but we won't right. know who was holding the the knife through her statement now what's the other one's name i'm trying to hurt in my head you have dylan and bethany dylan dylan yeah this is the one that supposedly saw him, right? Walking out. Yeah. Um, her statement is going to be more of what I think they're going to question more. How tall was he? What what she, what she see? And how come she didn't call the police sooner? That's, she's mm-hmm. the one that's going to get grilled. Right. But um, here's the thing. There's something that's called asked and answered. So if they, if the defense or the defense attorney, Ann Taylor goes, why didn't you call 911? And she goes, I was in shock and scared. I didn't know what to do. And I called, I texted my friends. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know the extent of what was happening. They can't answer the same question again. That's it. They can't grill her. The question is asked and then answered. It's moved on. Now, in an interrogation, you know, um, you're talking with police officers. That's that's where those come into play. Now, if they have evidence to discredit her credibility, like, I don't know, they pull up her text messages and there's something in there that uh, off or weird, right? Then, you know, they can discredit her that way. Now, as far as her statement, even if they come out and say, hey, you know, were you drinking that night? And she says, yeah. yeah. Were you on some drugs that night? Yeah. Let's just say she says, yeah. And, and then they go, well, is it possible that you were under the influence of this, that you didn't see Brian or, or you know, somebody that, that describes him? Well, even if she says, yeah, that's possible. Does that exclude Brian Coburger from committing this crime? It's not. I think I think her yeah. testimony is probably the weakest part of the case. You know what I'm saying? So even if they get that part and they say, oh, man, they didn't call 911. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. I don't think it's going to matter in the you look at the whole case and you're trying to judge what's going on here i think that if they say that they were in shock and fear and you can't ask another question about it i just feel that that's that's what's going to end up happening we got to be realistic about it well you can ask the same question but reward it right like differently kind of i mean if it's obviously the same question the lawyer can object to saying you know ask and answer you know it it just kind of depends you know you can ask other questions around it but you can't necessarily ask the same one and if you get too close to it then you can get an objection at that point for ask and answer here's the other thing that i wanted to talk about it says here the idaho state lab later located the single source of dna in the button snap of the knife sheet now there's been a big question that the dna was found at Authern 
Authorn or Authorn, I don't even know how it's pronounced. Uh, the lab here in Texas. Right. And uh, I've had people say and put in my, con- in my in the comments saying, hey, the DNA was um, it was found by, you know, the IgG lab. So they have to, you know, show their work, you know, bring that up or here. It says here, Idaho State Lab is who located it. And there are warrants. I'm not going to go through them all. There are warrants referencing the Idaho State Lab, which is referencing this information, the single source DNA. So it was not created in a different lab or found in a different lab. All right. So it says a part of the investigation, numerous interviews were conducted by Moscow Police Department, Idaho State Police Detectives, and FBI agents. Two of the interviews included Bethany and Dylan. Both Bethany and Dylan were inside the King Road residence at the time of the homicides. Both were roommates of the victims. EF bedroom was located on the east side of the first floor in the King Road residence. Based on numerous interviews conducted by MPD officers and ISP detectives and FBI agents, as well as my review of the evidence, I have learned the following. I think also right here it says they had numerous interviews. Two of the interviews included, or a few of the, uh, two of these interviews included Bethany and Dylan. So they viewed them twice by a few of these different law enforcement. So it says here on the evening of November 12th, Chapman and Cronodal were seen by Bethany Frank. Our funk at Sigma Chi House on the University of Idaho campus, right at 7:35 Nez Perez Drive, at approximately nine. Biff also stated that Chapman did not live at the King Road residence, but was a guest of Colonel. They did get statements from them eventually, because this is what Bethany is saying. So for those that say, "Hey, we don't know anything that Bethany said," not entirely true. She she stated that Ethan didn't live there; and he was just a guest, mm-hmm. and that she had seen him at that. Gonzalez and Mogan were at a local bar at the Corner Club at 202 North Main Street in Moscow. Gonzalez and Mogan had been seen in a video footage provided by the Corner Club between 10 and 1.30 a.m. On November 13, approximately 1.30 a.m., Gonzalez Mogan can be seen on the video. A local food vendor called the Grub Truck. And uh, did I call the Corner Club the Grub Truck? I may have, but I meant the Corner Club earlier. It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> at 3, 318 South Main Street in downtown Moscow. The Grub Truck streams video from their food truck and streaming platform Twitch, which is available for public viewing on the website. The video was captured by law enforcement. A private party reported that he provided a ride to Gonzalez and Mogan at approximately 1.56 a.m. from downtown Moscow in front of the Grub Truck to the King Road residence. So anything that happened like at 1 o'clock, 1.30, you know, that people think that they hear on the Linda Lane footage, girls didn't get home until 2, basically. Yeah. So that's out the window. Yeah. All right. So it says DM and BF statements during interviews. Multiple interviews, right? They indicated occupants of the King Road residence were home by 2 a.m. and asleep, or at least in their rooms by approximately 4 a.m. It's interesting, though. It's saying that they were home by 2. How did they know they were in their sleep at 4 if they were asleep? Unless that's the time they fell asleep. Things that make me go, hmm. It's um, creepily too close to the time they entered the house. Right. Like, how do you know that they were in their rooms in her sleep? If you're asleep, like, unless she fell asleep at 4. Yeah. I don't know. I, I I think there's an aspect. I'm not trying to convince, you know, create conspiracy, but I do think that there's an aspect of poor report writing that's going on here. You know, before everybody dives into, like, oh, there's something. I knew it. We also have to realize that this is the uh, report writing of these that sometimes aren't the best. And, you know, the smaller the department, usually the less standards that are required. And so you'll get some mm. report writing misspellings. Like me myself, I can't spell with crap. So if it's not for spell check, I'd be in trouble. All right, let's continue. Yeah. This I mean, and not even not only that, but like they can also be, like you said, remembering something that is false, you know what I mean, by accident. I sometimes forget, well, not sometimes, I always forget stuff. Always. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like I can, like I can be like, oh, it happened yesterday. And that was actually like last week, let alone right. like time wise. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. Unless you're trying to remember something specific, it would be very difficult. I believe the last call was around 2.50 something, 2.45. It was before 3 a.m. It was right around that time. So, all right. 
Let's continue this. So this says, with the exception of Kenodal, who received a DoorDash order at the residence at approximately 4 a.m. So I think that what they're basically trying to say was like, to your knowledge, did everybody go to sleep and go to bed? And they're probably saying, to our knowledge, everybody went to sleep in bed. And the reason why it says by 4 a.m. is because they know that not a DoorDash and received it at approximately 4 a.m. So like in other words, everybody except her was, was asleep. Right? right. Yeah, I think that's what they're basically trying to say. Yeah. And the reason why that they know that is because she received a DoorDash order at approximately 4 a.m. Law enforcement identified the DoorDash driver who reported this information. So I wonder if she, if the DoorDasher saw either pick up the food and or if she handed it off to her. Because it's not, it doesn't say that it's based off of you know, DoorDash records. It says based off of the DoorDash delivery driver who reported it. So she reported that it was received. Well, most of the time the DoorDash just drops it off, right? It takes a picture sometimes. And takes off. So, like, if you're gonna yeah. report that you received it, it has to be by through the app that you know requested it, right? Requested uh, that bird to be delivered. I mean, yeah, but if let's just say Zana was ready for her order and she knows, I don't know what she ordered. You know, we're all assuming it's the Jack in the Box because we can see the Jack in the Box name on it. But there's a good possibility that was ordered the day before, or earlier that yeah. day, or couple of days earlier so we don't know what it was that she ordered but we know that it was like 29 degrees that night so she may not want her food to be out there in the cold so she may have been prepared to you know to get the meal and maybe it was downstairs already waiting for it is there like a tracker on 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 like doordash when you order food that it shows you where it's at on its way you know what i'm not really sure dude, to be honest i know like like um ubers do you know you can see where the your ubers at but i don't know if that's the same thing <laughs> yeah. with doordash <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't know either. i don't know but town's too small for doordash yeah like uh, literally i could walk down the street and like hit kfc and just buy something and run back well that's what people are going to do in doordash out there they're just going to run down the street <laughs> forget the car uh cynthia Gaines comes in with a 10 dollar super chest she says do either of you know who the cowboys investigating king road crime scene chatter asking i heard they were fbi i don't know thanks for your hard work guys um I don't know, but I thought that they were probably, they're probably uh, Idaho State detectives. Idaho State Police detectives is probably my my thought. Like in Texas, the county investigators or the state police investigators usually dress in that attire. Uh, federal agents usually don't. They're usually like in suits or, or 511s. You know, it's not typical. I've, 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 I don't know. I've never personally seen an FBI agent dressed in that manner. I'm sure that there are. But given the area and stuff, I'm gonna assume that it was probably the state police investigators, detectives from the, you know, from the state police. DM stated she originally went to sleep in her bedroom on the southeast side. See, I, I still don't understand like like this part. She originally went to sleep. Why even put it? Like even I, I get you're gonna have to explain it. You're gonna have to give you know we're gonna have to know about it later. But why put that in here? I don't know. I don't understand it. Why do you think they put it originally? Do you think she changed her statement? I think that there's a possibility she did. What do you think? Um. You know what? I'm not really sure. Um, maybe because let's see. She originally went to sleep in her bedroom on the southeast second floor. Maybe because she moved some, like no, like fell asleep somewhere else, or and then went back to there. I'm not really it, sure. it could mean that she left her room afterwards. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's possible that after the incident that she went to Bethany's room? Maybe, maybe. Yeah. I do want to remind part. everybody this is speculation. One hundred percent. Oh yeah. Where's our banner? Where's the banner? <laughs> yeah, because they originally they why, why would they put that right? Like if it's just a straightforward statement, right? Unless, like you said, unless she changed it from something else, or she ended up somewhere else. If I went to sleep in my bedroom, uh, I, I saw these things, heard this stuff, and then um, you know, at some point throughout the night, she ran downstairs to Bethany's, which would explain why maybe they don't feel the because, from my understanding, the backsliding glass door 
was left open through the entire night. You know, if she runs down right. and she's not on that floor, she may not be feeling the cold as much, but uh, I don't know. I think it would still get down there. Uh, it's yeah. interesting. DM stated she woke up at approximately 4 a.m., but what she said sounded like Gonzalez playing with her dog in the upstairs bedroom. She was uh, awoken, so that tells us that she was asleep. She was asleep at 4. A short time later, she heard who she thought was Gonzalez say something to the effect, there's someone here. Now, people can get those type of things wrong, you know, even though they... They've lived with each other and stuff. They can get voices wrong and think that they've heard one person and another. She thinks she hears that. Police think that that's Kernodal because based on the forensic download of Kernodal's phone, which you would think that if they did a forensic download on Kernodal's phone, they're going to do it on everybody, right? Yeah. So if there was any sign, any sign of drug activity, do you think they would have found it on her phone, on anybody's phone that's in there? I'm sure they would. And why would... Why would Idaho Police Department or law enforcement protect drug dealers in favor of the criminologist PhD student? Like, I don't get the logic there. No, none whatsoever. All right. So I think that they would have had, they did a forensic download. They would have known that, hey, we have some text messages. Even if they were deleted, nothing is ever deleted and police can pull it up. I did a forensic download of Colonel's phone, showed that this could have been her as her cellular phone indicated she was likely awake using TikTok app at approximately 4, 12 a.m. Folks are saying it could have been running. It could have been running. I'm pretty sure that there's an indication if it was running on the same TikTok or not. Right. It was probably say that it was showing for X amount of times on this one view. So I don't think that that was the case. I do think that she was awake at 4, 12 a.m. Using the TikTok app, that tells me that she's more than likely in the bedroom. Right. 4, 12 a.m., not in the kitchen. So she's probably in the bedroom. They think that it is her that said it. So my assumption is, and this is my speculation, that the backsliding glass door was open. It was left open throughout the entire crime. And that Kernodal felt the draft coming in and got up to see what's up. Saw the backsliding glass door open. Said, I think someone's here. Turned around to go back to get her boyfriend who was still asleep. And I think that's when she may have been surprised as she entered her bedroom. And which would explain why there's no... DNA under the fingernails of the victims or any of those things. You know, if, if two of them were asleep. Surprise attack. Yeah, one was surprised. You have Ethan. I'm not sure, you know, how quickly he's going to wake up or, or whatnot at 4 a.m. If he's drunk and, you know, intoxicated asleep, if there's not a lot of noise there that are made. There's just a thud, right? We know that because of the ring or we're assuming it's ring, but the surveillance camera that picked up audio next door, it said it picked up whimpering or voices, uh, a thud and a dog barking. It doesn't pick up a scream or any of those things. So is it possible Ethan was even asleep when he started his attack? I think so. I think that's a good possibility that he was already crashed out, you know what I mean? Especially after, you know, a long night. I know. All I right. Would. An easy day. Yeah. KB said, but Dana's dad said she had bruises. So there was a fight. I mean, where's the DNA? Where's the DNA under her fingernails? If somebody was fighting for their life, where's the noise for that on the audio? I understand yeah, I think, a family could be going through something, but they mm-hmm. go ahead. What do no, you think? I think, if, I think if the if there was a big struggle, I think it would have been a different uh, statement from Bethany. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, because well, that, I mean, I think, that you could probably, you could probably hear, hear it throughout the house. Well, if you're hearing a thud and you're hearing yeah. voices, you would hear a struggle, mm-hmm. kicking. Yeah. Now we, we we've seen the. The pictures of inside that house and the floors were remodeled and they had those limonial or whatever. It didn't appear that they had carpet in those bedrooms. So that, that would have been a pounding that could, that should have been heard. That tells yeah. me there wasn't much of a struggle y'all. Right. Yeah, especially now, somebody could they, have... they mistake it or there's some, they was sick for playing with a the dog. Right. Right. Like 
Hang on, I'll ask you a question. What, I don't think I don't think, I don't think they will mistake it with playing with a dog or something. A, a struggle for your life. I don't think they will mistake it for just playing around with the dog. You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so you have like with a K bar nine. How many times do you think a person with relatively good physical condition would stab a person just back and forth in one minute? Uh, you know what? I think there was a study on this. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but a lot. Yeah, a it's like it's yeah, so, so I think it's like a hundred some, you know, like stabs. With, right there. Yeah, within a minute. Yeah. Within a minute. That's crazy. All right, and and I don't know who told you that it was only picked up for a short period of time. Whoever told you that is probably just assuming that because there's no evidence of that unless you've heard <laughs> the audio yourself, um, which I don't think so. You know, if you can hear the thud, you would hear the fights that go along with, it, and you would know how much sooner before then as well what, were, what, what was the last thing you said about if the struggle yeah. was going on around yeah you yeah. wouldn't be able to, you can't you can't confuse it for like no at least to me you just playing with the dog you know what i mean it'll be right. yelling screaming kicking pushing fighting you know what i mean yeah yeah exactly and i think that there's some sort of misconception or misunderstanding you know people think that brian Koberger went up against four people who were alert not intoxicated awake and prepared to fight and had some sort of training you know, to fight back. And that's not the case here. You know, you had possibly three individuals asleep and, and a fourth by a surprise, maybe even from behind. You're not going to have this amazing fight that you see in these movies, you know, that go on for 10 minutes, you know, and, and the person doesn't die. That doesn't happen in real life. Yeah. I've seen plenty of videos of, of like robberies at knife point, you know, and it's like when you, when they stab them, they're, they're, it ain't like the movies, man. You don't want to, you don't run away. You start spitting out, you know, your, your blood and whatnot. You so, tend to stay there. Paula says, we really don't know that. They could have been awake. Yeah, they could have, but honestly, you got a guy with a knife. Yeah, these, these four individuals that have been drinking that night, even if they're awake. Are they trained fighters? Are they going to be able to, you know, attack Brian Cobra, disarm him, tie him up, put him on the ground, wait for police? It's not happening. At 4 a.m.? as well like come on you know people are saying there's no proof that they were asleep okay all right let's say that they were awake uh, everybody was awake at 4 a.m for for no apparent reason after drinking and you know the ring off next door doesn't pick up any of that that noise none of that gets picked up it's just but they're awake probably doing things they're not supposed to right that's that's the theory it, it doesn't make uh, sense people i guess one suspect like even like you said if they're not trained fighters there would have been a hell of a lot of commotion happening a hell of a lot right. and and this person says unravel she comes in saying my opinion is someone is yelling especially being drunk right. but where's the audio it didn't happen it didn't happen we're gonna hear what happened at court there's no yelling from here so it didn't happen there wasn't this big fight Right. There would be some sort of, you know, DNA underneath one of these four people's, you know, fingernails from scratching or, or fighting back. Yeah. But there's not. And how do we know that? Because they're utilizing freaking DNA that was found on a sheath to compare to Brian Cobra. Uh, hello, freaking DNA under the damn fingernail is way better. So it, unless it's not there, like mm -hmm. you're not going to go sheath, right? Not only that, right, but on, like what, even what the victims in upstairs that were found in bed, you think the suspect would have put them back in bed if they were awake and fighting him? Yeah, no, you're right. But when it, he it wouldn't make the sense. trouble, right? I don't think so. I mean, especially with everything that, that I've been told and what we know from here and everything else. And as far as what audio, at approximately 417, a security camera located at the 1112 uh, King Road residence immediately northwest of the uh, 1122 uh, King Road picked up the shit audio of what sounded like voices or a whimper 
followed by a loud thud. A dog can also be heard barking numerous times starting at 417. The security camera is less than 50 feet from the west wall of Kernodal's bedroom. There's no screaming, no yelling. There's no multiple thuds sounding like kicks on the floor. I think, no... I think if, if, that, if he went upstairs, right, and did what he did, people that are awake, all the commotion and everything, after he would have committed that crime, he would have been out of there. He would have gone to, you know, to the other room. You know what I mean? On the second floor. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been gone, man, especially because you got two people fighting for their lives. Yeah, no, exactly. And and even if it comes out that there there was a scream, like, I mean, I get it might sound bad to us, but JLR was out there at night. Mm-hmm. He put his he put his phone up and you heard multiple screams night. Yeah. From party goers yeah. in that in that exact area. So even if we were to hear a single scream, that doesn't necessarily mean that in that area that that's what's going on. So I feel like, you know, is it benefit of the doubt to the victims that were the surviving roommates? Yeah, it is. It, it, it could be perceived that way. But I honestly do not think that they had anything involved because they also have their phones forensically downloaded. And if there was something that popped up on there, like some sort of connection, I had somebody say they were aware that the the other roommates were going to get roughed up. Well, how would they have been aware? How would they have known? There wouldn't have been no conversation through their phone whether phone call, text message, Snapchat, whatever, because they, they, they did warrants on all of them. They did warrants on all of them. So, so that information is not going to come up. And if it does, I say, you know what, let's go ahead and let these drug dealers go so we can go arrest this PhD student. Mm-mm. Come on. And, and for those that are saying, well, what about, you know, he didn't leave any fibers. He didn't do this. Somebody committed this crime. Somebody committed this crime. It's not make-believe. Somebody committed this crime. And if you take the DNA off the sheath out of it and you take Brian Koberger's name, out of this situation, somebody had committed this crime perfectly. They committed the perfect crime, didn't leave their DNA, didn't take any DNA with them, didn't do any of those things. And somehow simultaneously while committing a quadruple homicide with a knife in close proximity to the victims, framed Brian Koberger in the process. Yeah, like that. Not only that, but like if there's no DNA anywhere else, then it would be easier. It would be easier to leave the DNA there if with a struggle and with not, you know, if unless the, the victims were sick. You know what I'm saying? It's easier. Right. Exactly. So like, and if somebody committed this crime and to this extent to commit this crime, they would have had to have had the means to have committed this crime. Means not just meaning that they're strong enough, capable. They would have had to have had the knowledge of how not to leave DNA behind, how not to do any of those things, how to commit a crime and how you would be investigated because off the earth. And, you know, you think that that's going to be a drug dealer going to do that or a, or a college kid whose girlfriend just broke up with him he's moving to texas and he's all emotional i think he's going to go through that much detail i mean somebody has to be capable of committing this crime somebody has to be smart enough to commit this crime all right what are your thoughts no like you said i don't think it's going to be just someone off the streets that don't know how to you know cover their tracks at least you know they have to have some knowledge mm-hmm. if they're gonna they're not gonna leave dna or anything behind the only thing yeah. that the, the only thing they left behind was um, the sheath, apparently. Right. But uh, someone like if it was if it was cartel, they would have been worse. There wouldn't be anybody surviving in the house. Dude, there was a there was a situation where four people were executed in California. It's, it was it was determined it was cartel very quickly, and it was broadcasted that it was cartel very quickly. So those things aren't aren't secrets. Those things people make a statement. They're trying to make a statement in that. And as mm-hmm. far as the other thing I wanted to clear up was. Oh, and who's stupid enough to take their own car? Who's stupid enough to borrow a car, rent a car, or steal a car to commit this crime? Like, that's the dumbest thing I would have ever expected somebody to do. You know, you, you, you're going to go rent a car? You don't think there's going to be a paper trail for that? All right. You're going to go borrow a car? Now, who are his friends? He's not from the area. 
right? Brian Koberger is not from the area. So who are his friends, PhD students or who, who does he know? I mean, maybe not say friends because I don't think he has any, but who does he know? PhD students, uh, criminology students. You think they're going to be like, hey, yeah, you can borrow my car. And then, you know, hey, the night I lend Brian my car, there, somebody mm-hmm. died and there's a bunch of blood in it because apparently there has to be blood because somebody was actively bleeding in there. Right? They're not going to call the police or or you, you think they're going to keep it to themselves, you know? Stealing the car. You don't think they're going to, you commit two crimes. You got to get away with both of them now. Oh, Not only that, but like if you steal a car, the, the town is super small and there's yeah, cameras right. pretty much in every intersection and whatnot. I think the best right. bet was to use his own car and uh, cover it up so he won't get nothing on it. If he, yeah, exactly. You know, if he got something on him, you know what I mean? All right, exactly. Whilst the obsession comes on with the 499 Super Chase, a great point, Daniel. Someone had to leave something behind. It seems it was Koberger, exactly. All right. And when it comes to Brian Koberger and him, leaving things behind and people saying, oh, well, he committed the perfect crime. How is he so dumb to leave the sheet behind? BTK left the gun behind at one of his crimes. Yeah. You also have the fact that where are the mistakes made? Where are the mistakes made? The mistakes are made uh, during the commission of the crime, during the time when shit is real. Excuse my French, but that's that's what it is, right? Like we, we see the lane footage and we see that after four o'clock and my assumption is that there was a light on in the house, uh, identify that that was the house for the door dasher. And after Xana received her door dash item at 4 a.m., at that alerting tool whatever it was maybe it would be a light on in the house or in the front turned off and at that point you start seeing the driver of that white vehicle start acting erratic it had driven around like four times and no problems but as soon as whatever happens at 4 a.m they start doing this weird turn tries to park in front of the house can't do it does another three-point turn comes around parks in the back already making a bunch of mistakes even honks the horn mistakes what makes you think he's not going to continue to make mistakes when he gets in the house like leaving something important behind he is smart. He planned the perfect crime. He's not a freaking robot. Humans make mistakes. And the biggest mistake he made was leaving the sheet behind. What do you think? Yeah. Leaving the sheet behind was going to be the, you know, the, the best thing he did. You know what I mean? Like you said before, if it wasn't, if it wasn't for that, like, I don't know if they could have um, arrested him. You know what I mean? They would have had no idea who it was. Oh, yeah. One says one footprint. Surely the uh, only one someone... Uh, shoot. Only one footprint. Surely the only one someone didn't clean. All right. So this is assuming that they cleaned the scene. Here's the thing. From my understanding and even from um, media sources and stuff like that, the crime was very bloody. It wasn't cleaned up. It was uh, the scene was very bloody, but it was contained to the bedrooms. You know, And if we have a couple of people that were attacked while laying down in bed, the blood would gravity would pull the blood downward and soak the mattress beneath them it wouldn't necessarily pull underneath them and you you wouldn't have your perpetrator stepping into it so if they're not stepping into the blood they wouldn't have the footprints just because blood squirts on you doesn't mean you're actively bleeding either or that it's going to be dripping blood dries fairly quickly the squirting and the blood that is lost there it's going to be a lot but the majority of it probably isn't going to be on your suspect Majority of it is going to be on the wall. It's going to be on the floor. It's going to be on the mattress. Majority of it is going to be in the mattress in the back. Yeah, that, that's where I'm at on that. You know, unless, you know, the killer was rolling on the floor or on the walls, there, there wouldn't be a trail. Now, why there's a possibility of one print, I think that maybe maybe the knife did drip or something, or it could have been from another time, to be honest with you. It, it, they didn't see it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Especially because there's so many people that walk in through their house on mm-hmm. you know prior occasions. Uh, this says here on about what DM saw that he opened the door the third time after she heard crying, saw a figure clad in black clothing. So I think that the crying that is being heard here from Dylan is probably the whimpering 
of that is being heard from the audio. So I figured clad in black clothing and a mask that covered a person's mouth and uh, stated, uh, not uh, and walking towards her, DM described a figure as five foot ten or taller, male, not very muscular. The other thing is people are saying, oh, man, she used the word, you know, clad in black. But I don't see any parentheses over this. Right here it says frozen shock phase. That's in parentheses. That means that's what she said. Clad in black and all this stuff. That's just interpretation from what she said that the officer received. So she said that the male walked back to the sliding glass door. She locked herself in her room after receiving the mail. Receipt after seeing the mail. Uh, this leads the investigators to believe that he left. In combination of DM statements and law enforcement reviews of forensic downloads of records of BFND. So they went through both of their phone forensic downloads mm -hmm. they went through both dylan and bethany's and they went through all the victims don't you think you find something there that leads back to hey they were doing something illegal criminal activities yeah. right right mm -hmm. or something that would you know you would expect something like this to happen it, yeah it, it just makes it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense the video of the suspect vehicle described believes and lead or uh, Below leads investigators to believe that the homicide occurred between 4 a.m. and 425 a.m. During the process of the crime scene, investigators found a latent shoe print. This was located during the second processing of the crime scene by the ISP forensic team, first by presumptive blood tests and then amino black. A protein stain that detects the presence of cellular material. The detected shoe print showed a diamond-shaped pattern. So they had to have seen it because they used a presumptive blood test. You wouldn't take that blood test unless you saw it or you knew it was there, right? Yeah. No, like especially like... You know how they searched uh, Coburger's house? They took everything that had a, a red stain or brownish stain. Yeah. So it's the same thing here. No, I agree. You know, so, you know, just going through this, I don't think there's anything else different. But I, I wanted to basically touch on a few of the things that, you know, some of the questions and the comments that we had been getting are referencing Brian Coburger and, and this statement. And, hey, one officer saw it, one officer didn't. And that's not necessarily the, the complete case. I just wanted to go through this specific part of the uh, this affidavit just because of the fact that I've been getting a lot of questions like, oh, hey, you should read this one. There's some differences and this and that. And, you yeah. know, a lot of a lot of emails, actually. Yeah. So that's all I got for you guys today. Uh, I'll go through more of this. Uh, and if you guys have any questions, comments, leave them in the comment section. When you guys ask me these questions about like, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? It gives me the opportunity to think about it, research what we saw, and then think about it in a, in a certain moment. I think I can come back with a logical explanation. Thank you, mods. Thank you, members. Thank you, everybody in the live chat. Thank you for everybody being respectful. We appreciate y'all. Have a good night. Peace out.